Okay, there we are. And that was, uh, what was that, by the way, correct? Um, that was The Living End with um, The Sound of Music that was made past 1970. Um, sound of Music didn't sound like uh, Julie Andrews to me. It was called All Tall Down. <laughs> okay. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh I, I get it. I get it. Okay. That was Corey Green talking just then, and she's pressing buttons doing good things. I'm Kevin Healy. This is City Limits, and today it's um, third Wednesday. It's housing day on our normal routine, and April break from the Housing with the Aged Action Group will be coming in in the second half of the program. And the first half, as we've mentioned the past couple of weeks, Corey, we're interviewing Helen Syed, the author of... Uh, a book called Five Egyptian Pounds, which is the story of her father, who's still alive, and he's, he was the Hobson's Bay Citizen of the Year a couple of years ago. But the book is, uh, the first two-thirds of the book or so, which I found really interesting, is about their lives in Egypt and France and England, and I found that part particularly interesting. I don't know about you, but yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was interesting, um, definitely, about um, how major life events affected people, you know, the personal yeah. is political sort of thing, and... You got to learn a little bit about the culture, the political sort of situation, and then how that interacted with um, the family's own culture, which was, of course, this very strange mix. It was Maltese Catholic, Greek-speaking. And there was Greek Orthodox in there. Yes, yes. Um, so really? Yeah. So how that... How that um, Mixed in with all the different cultures. And living in Egypt for a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it all started when a, when a boy climbed a tree and miraculously was saved from um, an earthquake that killed mm. the rest of his family. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And I think there's lessons. I mean, it's like all these things when, when you apply, apply lessons to it. I mean, you can see in the way the Egyptians were treated by the British how we treat our own Indigenous people here still. Mm. And certainly when they went to England, and we'll talk to Helen about it, when they went, when the father and mother went to England originally, they were banished from Egypt after the, the British were thrown out. And mm. they, had, they were British citizens, although they were Greek and all sorts of other things. Um, as refugees with no money, and that was the five Egyptian pounds, that's all he had, but it was worthless there anyway, um, how refugees feel. And um, and the father has, in Australia, of course, worked very closely with the refugee groups here in Australia. So, mm. yeah, all those lessons, I think, and it's, we'll talk about that, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. i got to say my so, favourite part of the book was when... Um, I'm going to pour the tea now, by the way. Do you want a cup of tea? I, oh, I'd love a I cup got, of tea, there's a, there's, a, there's a woman who writes to us regularly, uh, a listener, um, mm-hmm. who... Um, Berated me in a letter this week for not pouring the tea early enough, so I'll pour it now. Oh, good. And I think she's going broke, by the way, buying cards and stamps. She, <laughs> yeah, she, she, she and she buys the most appropriate cards. They, uh, and um, anyway, they're they're wonderful. But anyway, there oh, you are. I, I met her the other day while I was on reception. Oh, she has you? a face now. Oh, really? It's, it's not just a signed thing. Oh, mm. there you are. Have a cup of tea. Yeah, maybe she is and, going broke because she hand delivered the. Uh, Oh, well, well, in that case, maybe, yeah, the stamps are getting to her. I mean, they um, have gone up to 70 cents a pop, which yeah. is, well, you she, know. she did, well, they're going up further, but she did raise um, with me that question we raised last week about the um, the Pocket Park in um, in Macubri Crescent in Sunshine being sold off by an unelected commissioners. And just the update on that, and we'll do more about it, I think, but there's an ALP conference this Saturday week on at, um, at Mooney Valley or somewhere, which we don't we ignore. But um, they have the group there have got a union leader prepared to go to that conference and, uh, and, and urge that the matter be rescinded. One, but secondly, that the commissioners be thrown out mm. and replaced with an elected council. So, interesting to see what the ALP does with that conference next week. How long um, has it been since the ALP followed its own, you know? Theoretical democratic rules, though. 
Oh, um, um, how long have I got to answer that? <laughs> it's uh, it's been a long, long time. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, wasn't um, wasn't a big move away from that um, during the Whitlam years. Yeah, yeah. There's always that thing, and, and yeah, and one of the tactics is you get the leader to make a statement, and then the party is committed to it. So even though most people don't want it, they say we can't now publicly embarrass the leader, so to speak. So all those tricks. But oh yes, over the I can go through lots of stories where, when I was involved, and I haven't been involved since about '85, but um, the. the but decisions of policy committees or conferences were just ignored by governments if they wanted to ignore them, and, and they mostly did. Mm. Um, you know, a couple of freeways in Melbourne were totally against policy um, around the place, uh, but there's heaps of examples of such things. Yeah, so you know, who so knows? But what's the point? Uh, of the, uh, what's the point of the charade? Well, if if I suppose if it carries it, uh, there might be some pressure on them at the moment. I mean, this there was a Labor government that sacked the council in the first place, but then. The Liberal government, Napthine or you know Bailiu originally, they sacked the commissioners the Labor government put in, which weren't too good anyway, but and then put in their own, and these are the ones who have now sold it off. Uh, and at the moment, they and it, it'll go close to eight years by the time. At the moment, they're saying they won't have a re-elected council until the round of next round of council elections, which is in the end of next year. It's November, October in sixteen. But when they do so, elect the council, I mean, the council is just going to not follow democratic procedures anyway. Uh, yes, that's right. So, <laughs> good point. You know, what, what does it even matter? <laughs> good point. And the other point that was raised in a, in a in correspondence, um, I think they're going to put it out to tender. I'm not sure they've got a, they might have a specific developer in mind, but no one knows who it is if that's the case. Um, I, I, one I did want to raise um, before we go to Helen is, uh, or just one, one point to you. We're pleased to know that Ronnie Wanker, Ronnie Walker, I'm sorry, um, who's been running the Grand Prix for years and selling off Albert Park, he told us last week that that um, $500 million over the, the term of it being in Melbourne is what we've given to the... Um, He's made Eccleston. Oh yeah, that's um, um, nice of us. Bernie, yeah, we Bernie. must really like him. Yeah, Bernie. Yeah, Bernie. Well, we can't afford to up to support the lifestyles of Aboriginals because we have to support the lifestyles of Bernie Eccleston. So, um, anyway, five hundred million. He says is money well spent. It's great value for Melbourne. He points out. No. I'm oh, sure. Good. I'm sure we've all felt the benefit. You feel the benefit, do you? Uh, oh yeah. yeah I'd feel the benefit if um, they gave me five hundred million. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's that's well. Bernie certainly feels the benefit. Yeah, I'd be happy to organise a drag race if anyone wants to give me five hundred million. <laughs> All right. Get, get out the witches' hats. Get yeah. out the old cars. And away you go. Or even push bike. Have a push bike one. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, that'd be all right. Um, now this one I found interesting in that it was in uh, in the last week or so on Tuesday in which is yesterday, isn't it? In the Financial Review. This woman, Lisa Vlahos, a Labor MP in South Australia, <clears throat> says pro-nuclear advocates have started to win the debate in the five weeks since Jay Weatherall, the Premier, announced a royal commission into the nuclear industry. She's been fighting for years for much more involvement in uranium, etc. And she thinks now it's much easier in the Labor Party. Well, it wasn't, hasn't been too hard for a long, long time. But how wonderful uranium is. And I found that because all the, the great advocates of uranium, and yet uh, in a separate story about the state government with the Liberals um, and they're saying big business around the world is attacking the Victorian government and we'll lose investment because if we if we back down on the East-West link and, uh, with, with Lend-Lease and the consortium and Briggs, the um, infrastructure minister, assistant minister for infrastructure federally, 
told the Australian Logistics Council Forum in Melbourne last week the federal government never expected the state government to go down this path, that is not to build it or not to compensate the poor the poor consortium for missing out. And he and introduced legislation he deemed as, quote, nuclear. Now, he uses nuclear there purely as a pejorative, suggesting mm-hmm. that nuclear is bad and terrible and awful. But if you said to him, well, you obviously therefore oppose nuclear energy, he'd probably say, no, no, it's a wonderful thing. So why would he use nuclear as a pejorative, do you think, uh, Corey? It's hard to say. Oh, it's very difficult, isn't it? Hard to get into the minds of these people. Yes, that's true, and thank God for that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Thank goodness. Um, There's also, just before we do move on, and what I did find interesting, on Monday, the... The um, Master Builders Association took ads in papers, I know sort of half-page ads, urging the crossbenchers in the Senate to support the Building Jackboots Commission against the Building Union. Mm-hmm. And uh, yesterday, just to keep the thing going, because the ad was obviously in the Financial Review, the front page locked out for defying CFMEU in this story about a poor employer who's suffering from the terrible, vicious union. Mm. Uh, it's so terrible. Terrible. Yes, and, and the workers spat on a, a woman who'd come out to um, one of the inspectors who came out and, according to Hedgekiss, of course, who's the the, ter- the bloke who runs it, uh, runs the runs the Fair Building Construction Committee on the Construction Commission, commission but, it, you know, it is, hasn't been legislated yet for what it used to be under work choices. Um, so now, whether she was or wasn't, and if they did, well, it's stupid to spit at her anyway. But nonetheless, you know, that's sort of example of how bad the workers are. And then a story, the breaking of a union man and how a union bloke um, who... Um, who the union regards as a scab, uh, but they they say what a wonderful man he is and how he's been treated. So that's all in the paper following in the last two days. So you're getting a bit of a picture, I think, that there's you know, the 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 usual anti-union push is really on heavy. Um, yeah. So there you are. Well, they're sort uh, of acting like unions don't want people to have jobs, and that's you know that's obviously yeah. not true. No, that's I mean right. they they only really take any sort of action with a lot of pressure from their own workers. And indeed, they, they give the – and then the bosses will tell you, of course, that they don't – you know, unions have a role to play, but they, that, that role is not in the workplace. <laughs> that role is to keep the working pl- class from revolting, that's isn't right, it? That's right, that's right, exactly, which they do pretty well, actually. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's that. The other bloke, Hedgekiss, by the way, um, he, he said before the rally two weeks ago that any building workers who went to that rally could face fines of up to many, many thousands of dollars each. If they went to the rally, so much for freedom of movement in our society. Yeah, freedom of expression. Freedom, yeah, all that sort of stuff. All right. Okay. Well, Well, let me take a break and we'll come back and talk to Helen Sayed about her book. Yeah, we're going to go to a track. Um, This is Marnie Stern uh, with Precious Metal. You're listening to 3CR. The time is 9.14pm. AM, AM. I'm totally onto this. And you're listening to 3CR City Limits. Time is 9.20 and we have Helen Saeed on the line. Helen, uh, well done this book, by the way. Oh, thank you, Kevin. How are you? <laughs> All right, you've been hanging on the line there. We haven't got a trouble with the line, but we sorted it out. Um, look, it's called Five Egyptian Pounds. Can I just ask you before we before we really get into it, just two things. One, what, what inspired you to, to write this, what effectively is a history of broader family, actually? 
Um, and secondly, can you just explain, we were talking about it earlier, but just explain the 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 range of races and, uh, and ethnic groups, etc., that are in the family background? Ah, uh, yes, we do have a very interesting family background, and it seems that every time the uh, ancestors moved to another country, they turned up just in time for another war. <laughs> so they kept on moving. Uh, yes, my mum is part English and part Greek, and my dad is part Greek and part Maltese, and they were born in Egypt, and I was born in England. And we've always, you know, had this mystery in our family. We, I grew up in a time in Australia where... You were meant to be either one of us or one of them, us being, you know, the Anglo-Saxon and them being the non-English-speaking migrant. And, of course, I was somewhere in the middle because I was born in England. So, uh, yeah, I've always wanted to find out more about the family. Um, we've always wanted to share our, our family stories. And, uh, yeah, that's what led me to, re- to write the book. Great. Well, I mean, they're great stories. Thank you very much. I you enjoyed it. <laughs> oh, yeah, I really enjoyed the book. Um, yes, yeah, so I wrote quite a bit about the time that my parents spent in Egypt. They lived through the Second World War and the first two Arab-Israeli wars before they were expelled from the country. Mm-hmm. And the book gets its name, Five Egyptian Pounds, because um, my parents were British subjects since my dad was part Maltese, and England, France, and Israel attacked Egypt. And when that happened, my parents were put under house arrest and the British assets were frozen. They weren't able to take money out of the bank and they were told to get out of the country and they were only allowed to take five Egyptian pounds with them and two two suitcases of clothes. Yep. So that was my mum, dad and my sister, who was then a baby, uh, arrived late at night in England with nobody even knowing that they were coming with this five pounds. Can we talk back a little bit earlier than that? Um, Your family actually occupied quite a privileged position in Egypt due to um, being British citizens, is that right? Uh, Yes, the European communities were establishing themselves in the 1800s in Egypt. And, of course, that was an era where the whites thought themselves to be superior. So it wasn't just an attitude, but it was also an economic system. Um, The Suez Canal was built with slave labour and Egypt had to give up its share of the Suez Canal in order to pay its third world debt. So the Suez Canal, which was um, an indispensable um, economic thing for the the West and potentially a great earner for Egypt. It ended up earning profits, Mm. massive profits for the colonialists. Indeed, you make the point in the book that working under slave labour conditions in the desert, it took one and a half million Egyptians ten years to dig the Suez Canal by hand. Many canal workers died of cholera, others collapsed at the spot where they toiled, dead from exhaustion only to be dragged to their sandy graves and replaced by other unwilling labourers. All in all, 125,000 Egyptians perished building this canal, and yet at the end of it all, Egypt didn't own it. Yes, that's right. 
And um, this, of course, was a very sore point, along with um, many other inequalities, which my parents grew up with. So in some ways, you know, when you grow up with something, in some ways you're accepting, but in other ways, people with a conscience get a feeling of unease that something is not quite right. And my father was always the one to try and whittle away at these class and cultural differences and get to know Arabs and even get to know Bedouins in the desert. But he didn't find much support for his... Mm. Um, in fact, he spoke many languages, including Arabic, did he? No, he does, in fact. He's still alive, so, yeah. Uh, yes, yes. One or two of those languages are a little rusty, but he, he's got a very good ear for languages. And, in fact, that was quite common for people in Egypt to be multilingual. Um, I think places like Australia stand out mm. because we are monolingual. Yep. So what was it like um, to your parents going from a, you know, a position where they're, you know, they're sort of almost the oppressive ruling class to um, becoming nobody, to becoming immigrants, to becoming foreigners in both England and then Australia? Uh, yes, that was, that was a very big uh, shock for them. And it happened, you know, on the spur of the moment they were expelled and arrived in England with nothing. And there was entrenched prejudices towards people like my parents in those days. And there were still signs on buildings saying flat to let no coloured people when they arrived in England. And there was a very strong class prejudice. And my dad ended up joining trade unions and trying to better his lot. So um, he ended up um, coming to quite a realisation about the fact that uh, British colonialism had been very oppressive in Egypt and they decided to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. And they became community leaders and they've helped a lot of people over the years who didn't know as many languages as them. In fact, the, in, back in Egypt, it seemed to me as that you could relate it to how we treat the Aboriginal communities here. Um, it, the, the, in a, just a couple of quotes. In our days, nobody's conscience was troubled by the huge disparity between our own upbringing and living standards and those of the, of the Egyptian children who stayed with us. We grew up with the idea that employment, in parentheses, of Arab children from poor families was an act of kindness. It was considered natural that non-European should aspire to lesser things. Conversely, no European in Cairo, no matter how poor, worked as a street sweeper, tram driver, domestic servant, rubbish collector or washerwoman. European culture and education rather than skin colour automatically set us apart from the, again, parenthesis, lower classes. And much later in the book you say, and talking about the same employing these people, the lowly status of so-called natives was considered part of a natural social order. The Egyptians were patronisingly thought to, to need British protective powers to control their country. Um, again, one can relate that very much to other, other places, can it not? Yes, yes, to other places and other eras, in fact, to the era that we live in today. Mm. Yes, so um, even some of the things like the fact that Europeans tried to create a bit of a, uh, a European paradise within Egypt, we can look at that and think, that's crazy, you know, they've got these European plants and these European ways in Egypt, but when, when you look at it, we also have that here in Australia. Mm, definitely. Uh, yeah, it's funny, you know, because Egypt has very dry land as well and Australia has the dry land and, yeah, you know, it's dry and hot, which is a very, very different climate from England, um, but still people yes, are right. 
So basically... Men have to wear three-piece suits to work. <laughs> yeah. Which is absolutely absurd. Yes. So, um, yeah, the point that I was making about the children was they didn't have education. Education in those days was something that Europeans paid for and it was provided by European church missions and the poorer Arabs missed out. And French was the official business language. Mm. So Arabs had their own written language for goodness knows how many thousands of years. Mm. It wasn't considered good enough for the business world and in fact it didn't appear to be the job of Europeans to learn Arabic or even to take out Egyptian citizenship, they were considered, you know, quite a bit above all of that and they imposed their language and their culture onto the rest as being, you know, the more sophisticated one. Mm. Also, yeah, yeah. also, your father observed they were above the law. Yes, um, if with, an, with a European passport... Um, an Egyptian policeman would be very reluctant to arrest a person with a European passport because they were the privileged class. And there's one point in the book where I said that the janitor had to jump to his feet and salute when my dad came past and, and good morning, how are goes like a sir or something to the European. And that was sort of expected. They were expected to look up to the Europeans. It was a very divided society. Mm. I was embarrassed by that same situation when I was in Papua New Guinea many years ago now when we were the colonial power and the same same practice occurred where you know you were quite embarrassed by the fact that the, the blacks were supposed to look up to you for God's sake in their own country. Yes and it ends up causing resentment because although some people would accept that situation the others Others, as I've pointed out in the book, um, who've had opportunities, who've gone to university, who've had an education, think, well, this is our country, we should be running it, and they have to organise. So in Egypt, they had to organise and fight to get the British out. The British wouldn't leave, and the British ended up in the Suez Canal zone, um, where they continue to control the most uh, vital economic asset of Egypt. Mm. And of course, as Corey pointed out, they, they, they went from that privileged position to refugees penniless because the yes. five pounds were worth nothing um, yes. in Britain um, and having to work their way through different language barriers and different cultures, etc. Um, and I guess, again, we can relate that, of course, to our treatment of refugees today in Australia. Uh, and, and, and understand how they feel, for goodness sake. Uh, yes, yes, I have tried very hard to convey that feeling. And I've written the book not just for my parents or for my family, but I've written it for the wider multicultural community. I've dedicated the book to future generations of multicultural Australians. And I've written it with the idea in mind that yeah, we can articulate what it's like and look back on what it's like uh, to be in that situation, to be refugees, um, having to prove yourself to people who think that you're something less worthy because of your custom or your colour of skin. My favourite part of the book was when um, your father was talking 
to your mother and grandmother and said that um, he thought Abdel Al Nasser was a hero. Ah, uh, yes. Now that's that's quite unusual. My dad, um, my dad referred to the president of Egypt who had kicked them out of the country, and he was being very honest. You know, like facing up to as as we have to through this reconciliation process, we have to face up to um, how we've treated Aborigines and how but, we continue to treat. Yes, yes, and my dad was being. Uh, very honest in saying, well, really, we were in the exploiting, controlling position. No wonder they kicked us out. And if I had been in the shoes of NASA, the president of Egypt, I would have done the same thing. So he could understand it from the other person's point of view. And that's what all of us need to do a whole lot more of. We need to understand the actions of our own race from another's point of view. Mm. And I think it's very important now with the Islamophobia and the wars in the Middle East for us to have a look at how these tensions arose in the first place. And, and one of the, another really interesting story in the book and, and it relates to uh, your father's and your great-uncle, I guess, Joseph, Uncle Joseph, yes. who was... Um, who was imprisoned um, by the Nazis um, in in France when they yes. occupied France, and his his wife, your auntie, or great your great aunt again, um, Theodora, and and son Billy would visit him, and he would actually smuggle out papers with them, which was quite dangerous. If they were caught, they would have been executed, I assume. Um, but they smuggled them out because he overheard the Germans and was actually getting information out to the resistance, and um, you know, Geraint was delivering it to them, um, and they did that quite. In fact, he got a Medal of Honor for it off the French post-war. But um, that you know, it's a quite racy little story in the middle of the book there. Uh, yes, well, look, we've only discovered this branch of the family recently. We've always known of this branch of the family, um, but what happened was that my grandfather got a job with the British Army in Egypt just after the First World War. And that's why uh, there was, you know, there was also a little bit of a, a disapproval, a social disapproval of the marriage of my grandparents. And they became separated from the rest of the family. And when we caught up with them, we found out that as British subjects in France, they had gone through hell while the Germans were occupying and I think, I think people need to realise that um, the British subjects abroad have paid for the sins of the British when they, they knew nothing of Britain. Mm. And of course... Oh, go on, sorry. In Australia, there's going to be um, a whole new class of refugee coming out with all those um, Aboriginal people being removed from the, their communities in Western yes. Australia. Yes. Um, what would you say uh, helped your family the most in, in adjusting to this awful situation? Look, what's helped us the most is what the refugees, uh, what the, uh, sorry, the, the Aborigines don't have, and that's the fact that we had education. The family had, you know, business and jobs and education back in Egypt. We were in a very privileged position when we came to Australia relative to other migrants because we already knew the language and my parents already had exposure to the English culture and they became um, community leaders because of this. There were many people who needed their help. Um, with 
with Aborigines being pushed out of their uh, traditional homelands, with these homelands being closed down, it's a dreadful situation because that's the life that they know and they're being pushed out into towns with inadequate education and they shouldn't be pushed out anyway. They shouldn't be made refugees in their own land. Mm. Also, it must have made a huge difference that um, eventually your parents did get some of the money from Egypt and managed to buy their own house in England. Uh, Yes, well, look, they didn't get as much wealth as what they had and, of course, they'd also lost their way of life and had a lot of um, upheavals. They got compensated for some of the wealth that they had and I think it was enough for the deposit. I don't think it was you know, enough for the whole house, but mm. um, it helped them get a start in England and selling that house and coming here with some money helped them pay a deposit on a house here and that's you know, quite unusual for migrants or especially people from a refugee background to have this amount of wealth. So, yes, that, that has been helpful. And the fact that they had education back in their homeland and were able to encourage us with our education has also been very beneficial to us. And I suppose we've always been conscious of the fact that this gives us a responsibility as well to speak up for other mm. migrants who don't have this voice. And indeed your father did that to such a degree he was named Hobson's Bay Citizen of the Year and he did work very... He worked... A lot of his employment, in fact, was working in terms of uh, inter, inter-community relationships and all sorts of things. Uh, yes. Well, look, the Australia that we migrated to back in the 1960s didn't have a lot of things that we take for granted today, like there was that description, for example, of him going to Broadmeadows Magistrate Court and having to get up as one of the defendants himself to translate for other defendants because there were no interpreters. Mm. Um, Also, the opposition that he faced in trying to set up multicultural organisations, and he had to fight against that. And workplaces were structured in a way that the Anglo-Saxons were at the top and you worked your way down almost to the various various ethnic groups. Yes, yes. Well, uh, being part of the boys' club or the um, English-speaking club or the drinking club, that was a method of promotion. Um, It wasn't knowledge of the job or even ability to get along with the workers. And, in fact, it worked in a reverse way in one company that he worked for where the um, management hated the workers, the upper, middle and lower uh, strata of of the workforce were three different racial groups. Hmm. Mm. And indeed, this this one I did find, and I don't know if, I don't know if you permit this or not, but I love the, the juxtapositioning of the phrasing. When your father was applied, were going for a job he got as community development officer with Footscray Council many years ago, and he using he'd been involved in many groups, and he says one of them was I, I and helped run the Altona Pollution Abatement Association, which organised local residents to protest against petrochemical pollution. It was a breath of fresh air, you then say, to see that speaking a second language might be an advantage oh. instead of a disadvantage, but the, the fresh air against the pollution abatement I found interesting. Oh, I hadn't intended that one, actually. No. I wasn't sure if you, if you were aware of that or not. No, I wasn't this one I've been aware of a couple of other things that I put in like that but this one no well there you are look April Braggs wandered into the studio from the House with Aged Action Group 
Yes. And I wanted her to come in because we won't finish up on this, but one thing I wanted to mention because clearly you say our family retained, this is toward the end of the book, our family retained its links with more traditional migrant community, but we as a family had been changed with all, after almost 20 years in Australia. We, like many other Australian families, no longer had extended family members on hand to give full-time care to our ageing parents. Mm. Everyone in our family either studied or worked full-time. In losing their leading role in society, their homes and their identity, the frail age was a section of the population that was missing out on the Equal Opportunities Revolution. And April, I'd like wonder if you could comment on that. I mean, it's something you've noticed. Well, certainly um, in our organisation and um, those other... um, uh, groups where older people are, um, uh, you know, act, uh, those other activist older groups like um, Fair Go for Pensioners, certainly with the release of the intergenerational report um, last or two two weeks ago where, um, you know, really it's uh, some of the recommendations in, in there, particularly economic, are about isolating the, the age population even more. And also, um, just as the, the book says, that um, if we've just got people working and working and working to, to cover basic needs and working longer and, and harder, then that section of the community is, is going to be further isolated. Mm. And then we're looking at, I mean, where, where does the care and support come from? And without that support, people do become un, unwell um, when we're, we're lonely and, and alone um, mm. because other generations are forced, as I said, to work harder mm. and longer. And are too busy. Um, you know, it's um, it really is a breakdown. Yeah. Comment, Helen. Uh, yeah, yes. Yeah. So, from our point of view, it wasn't even socially acceptable to put an older person mm. into an aged care facility. It was something that had to be done because there wasn't the care um, in the house. Everybody was working or studying, and. Sometimes you can get older people into a, an aged care facility where it's culturally relevant, where, they, where the people speak their language. Sometimes, no, they go into an old age home. Whatever English they've learned throughout their lives, it goes because of dementia. The last thing you learn is the first thing you lose. So uh, they're very much worse off and having to compete with younger younger uh, school leavers or younger job seekers like we complain about it in our 50s but they're talking about you know people in their late 60s having to continue to look for work Mm. well 80 I've got to wait nine years years. (laughs) Um, but uh, (laughs) look Helen are you going to need more more, um, correct I was just going to say also when it gets to that that point of residential care um I think it's where we really fall down as a society in the model that we have. It is really miserable. I, I have never, ever been to a facility, no matter how well they, you know, how they say and market it, how fantastic it is. And I think that that's particularly true of our cold communities um, in, in terms of, Helen, you're right with the, the language, but, um, you know, I mean, the majority of them are culturally lacking as, as, as well. Yeah. So yeah. Um, if we think Anglo people are doing it rough, it's... Um, I think even more difficult for those communities. Yeah. And, and the nuclear family falls down also, obviously, when there's a baby involved or somebody's yes. sick. Yes. You know, you, you really need a, a whole village to look after yes. everyone, yeah. unless you have a sort of Logan's Run situation where you execute mm. everyone at 25. Mm. Mm. And I've got to say that we're more and more um, dealing with um, elder abuse. And when you actually 
you know, break break it down to the incidents that 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 have happened. It it is. I mean, it's not that families hate their older older family members, but it's the pressure that everyone's under, and particularly it happens more when there um, are those families with with babies and small children, and you know, the expectation of perhaps you know, particularly older women, you know, needing to step up at that point in their life to you know to be the child carers because child care is that you know inaccessible um, in this country as well. So, yeah. Well, elder care and child care and care of the sick is very much undervalued women's work as well. Yes. <laughs> yes. So it, I mean, it's almost seen as, as not working, which is insane because it's, it's a lot of work. Yes. yes. But it, you're not... Having been a woman that dropped off a two-year-old at childcare this morning and ran to wrangle him, yes. <laughs> Didn't realise this had happened, April. But, uh, <laughs> Helen, look, uh, launch tomorrow night. Uh, yes. The book will be launched tomorrow night by Councillor Angela Altair at Altona Library in Queen Street, Altona at 6.30. And if you'd like to come to the launch, it's a a free public event, you can book in by ringing 1300 Hob Lib or going to the Hobson's Library website. Okay, and um, look, good luck with it, Helen. It's, it's, you've done a great job with it, and um, we wish it all all the best. We both, um, we both, after reading it, both said with how much we enjoyed it and what a great book it is. So we let's hope it sells lots. Like, is it available at all good bookstores? The usual crap. Um, I wish it was. It's actually <laughs> self-published, ah. and um, it's available through Equilibrium Bookstore, or you could also email me to Five Egyptian Pounds, or one word. Dot com, um, hang on, <laughs> say it again. Five Egyptian pounds at gmail dot com. Now is that the the um, five is spelt out F I V E? Yeah, five yes. as in a word. Yes, five Egyptian pounds at gmail dot com, and um, I could arrange to maybe take some books to a person or to a shop. Mm. Okay, because we really only scrape the service in this interview, so there's, it's, it's a great book, and we urge people to to do that, get onto it, and have a read. Because as we've said, there's so many lessons we can learn about uh, what's happening here, anyway. And of course, your father spent so much time here and has done such a great job in his own right in Australia, anyway. Thank you very much. Kevin. Okay, and thanks, all right, Helen. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Right. Thank you. thank you, Helen Said, who's the author of this book, Five Egyptian Pounds. It's actually written in the first person as a father saying it, but she obviously wrote it and did the history and all that sort of stuff. We'll take a very quick break, come back and talk to April Bragg about, um, about funding again, April. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. You're listening to City Limits on 3CR, and the time is 9.47. And that was Rat Nest with the offshore process. Ken Mooney's right. I better start choosing the music. Um, the <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> that message came in. I don't know. People mightn't have heard it, but they, that's right. That was an off 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 mic message, wasn't it? Anyway, um, oh, it'll wake you up. That's true. It does. April Bragg is in the studio, as you know. She comes in every month from the hell. She or Jeff from the Housing for the Aged Action Group. And April, um, notice recently, homeless groups are, are getting a bit anxious because the minister's saying he won't guarantee more funding until the budget, and yet they've got to prepare for next year and they've got staff who either are going to have jobs or not have jobs, the old story, and you're in the same boat, aren't you? Yes, we are. Um, and as you were saying earlier, Kevin... Yep, back in campaign mode. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, unfortunately we're, we're campaigning at the moment for our funding, as, as are all the other homelessness services as, as well. So what's actually happened is that um, with the National Partnership Agreement, which is the agreement be- 
between the states and the federal government on what housing dollars are available. Um, for the last couple of years, it has only been rolled over for, for 12 months um, while they were saying that they were examining other things like um, the, uh, um, I forget the name of the report, the um, what do you call it, like the foundation report of what Australia is supposed to look like. Um, last year when Kevin Andrews was the, the minister, he recognised the problem of leaving um, an announcement of funding until May um, would be really disastrous, meaning that a lot of services do have to start closing now and that's exactly what we're starting to do. We're starting to um, put together our transition out plan because we're a small organisation as well. We can't carry a lot of liabilities, so we're ensuring that all staff are using their their, their entitlements, um, and we're really working as as a skeleton staff at the moment. It must be a worry for you. You've got about eight years leave. <laughs> That's right. Well, we worked out that Jeff and I are the, are the biggest liabilities to the organisation. <laughs> so in that sense, right. Um, but also for for us, um, just uh, personally, we have over three hundred clients on our books at the moment and so it's how we resource those clients to get housing outcomes and um, also um, still responding to to new clients and we're really at that point of not being able to to do that. So, so how often does this funding process go through? Um, it seems um, every year, but for every so every year, do you have to transition out um, or plan that? This has been the worst year because Andrews did recognise um, that was an issue last year and that um, staff were being lost. Right, and this is right across Australia. Um, so he did release. Um, he did announce in February last year that he would roll the national partnership agreement over for one year to stop that from happening. Mm. However, Scott Morrison's now the the minister. <laughs> this group. <laughs> We were all rolling our eyes. Um, and he is saying, like, everyone... That really answers the question. You don't have to say anymore, that's really, do right. And it. he's saying that um, there'll be no, no announcement um, made until after the, the May budget. Um, because part of the funding's matched by the states, it leaves the state um, state government in that position as well, that while they're putting a budget together and organisations and programs like ours are, are state-funded, they don't know how much they're able to commit. So um, the campaign that, that we're running, um, which is, is um, you know, it's having really great effect and I've got to say it's been really humbling because um, on the webpage where we've put the campaign page up, um, we've had over, I think, 340 supporters um, this morning from a diverse um, group range of not only individuals but organisations, particularly in the health and aged care sector, who are, who are saying our service has to be funded because this is a, a very vulnerable group of people. Mm. Going through this every year seems like a big waste of time. It is. It is actually, and, when and we a big at- waste of these precious resources that they're pretending that they care about. Yes, and really. Um, Wasteful in terms of when you actually just think of staff resources of people mm. who are really experienced mm. and know yeah. how to provide housing support. It's been support. a long-term problem, hasn't it? I mean, where, where this sort of funding, annual or whatever funding, that as you get to this stage of the yeah. funding cycle, yeah. workers who are paid to do certain jobs are spending all their time trying to get the next round of funding. So it's a complete, you're that, right, it's a complete waste. That, that's right. Yeah. And yeah. those workers who, who are doing that, but we also have a workforce. I mean, we've said to all our workers for, um, I mean, over the last three months, because we've been trying to get some indication, I, I suppose particularly from the from the state about um, commitments 
beyond June. And as I said, they're not able to say anything at the moment, but so at least we could look at, see what the model might look like beyond that. But we've been saying to all our workers for at least three months now um, to really consider their personal circumstances and if they, you know, need time off to apply for jobs and look for jobs. Um, and, of course, that that's happening. We've, we've, if we lose this funding or it's not matched to, to the level that we've currently got, um, we lose nine workers. So we go from 13 back down to four. Wow. Um, and, and, of course, not being able to provide the service mm. that... Um, that we can to people. And I've got to say, our demand isn't any any less. Um, from our January, February um, figures have been the highest ever in terms of new client contacts. In January, it was 190, 189 um, people that made contact with us. Um, and, and again, we broke that down to um, the majority of those, well, 90% of them were people that actually needed housing support rather than information about their options because we provide that as well. And we promote that of saying to people, think about, you know, your housing situation. You know, don't think that, you know, if you're working now that you're going to be able to work into to the future if you're in that 50 to 60 age group. Um, if you're in private rental, you're basically facing homelessness, so you really need to start looking at what you're allocating for and um, and get your name on those mm. lists and whatever it ta- whatever's needed to to make that happen yeah. so I mean clearly if you were reduced to four workers yeah then a lot of people in what it would be critical situations simply you won't be able to help that's, I would imagine that's and, right. and, it'll, and it'll put those four workers under incredible stress yeah. anyway I mean you you, uh, yeah, you yeah. spend your life highly stressed with the now so um, <laughs> Well, yeah. what, well, the really terrible thing is, and, and I've got to say that, um, so just into our own outreach program, and again on the January figures, we accepted 34 clients and we triaged those clients. They they were the ones in the most um, precarious situ- situations. Like, um, So we were talking about violence or people that had, um, you know, about to have warrants executed to, to throw them out. And not only looking at people that were in bad situations, but people that actually had no other options too because one of the things that we explore that if we um, pick up a client to to provide housing support it it is is that urgency so do pe- people have family that they can stay with while we're while we're working with them and working through that for the three to six months but all of the people that we picked up had none of that fallback. These are people truly on their own and people that we were very concerned about that the housing option, crisis housing option for them, if we couldn't sustain them where they were, were places like rooming houses and, uh, you know, I, I mean, really, rooming houses are the pits and the worst. Mm. Um, it's, um, yeah, for... Yeah, and, and sorry, and I'm not talking about community rooming houses necessarily, but I, I mean where where vacancies There's are. There's a lot of unregistered it, rooming houses. Well, that's right, the and they're in the private yeah, sector. Yeah. So, um, and we've you know we've looked at rooms and we've taken people there, and we've just thought, no, we we can't do this. So, um, so they're the 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 most urgent of the urgent. And Kevin, it is really difficult as a worker. Um, because every phone call that comes in and you hear that one, you think, well, maybe I can just take this one more. <laughs> so, mm. And um, it's, uh, it is it is really heartbreaking and it's really worrying at the end of the day when you're actually saying, well, no, I, I can't help you and I have to refer you into a crisis service. So Scott Morrison transfers his compassion for refugees to compassion for the that, homeless. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's a, a real concern. And why there can't be discussions now with organisations rather than closing is is beyond me. 
except that one can predict he's probably going to cut the... Well, fight. that's the other thing that, that's really concerning is that... It's um, a really worrying thing. With, with yeah. this, because there's already been, um, I think, Martin Foley in Parliament last night raised that there'd been $450 million um, already ripped out of the um, social and community housing sector, well, the homelessness sector, um, since the government's been... Well, since the, the state Liberal government was in and also the feds, um, and that's, um, I mean, that's an extraordinary amount of money. And with not making that announcement till May, um, the writing would be on the wall, I think. Mm. What do you make of this um, excellent plan to create 20,000 more homeless people in Western Australia with the uh, closing of the homelands? A closing of the... The homelands communities, the Aboriginal communities? Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, Is there going to be the capacity to deal with any of them? No. No. It, because it, the, the system's... At, well, it's broken in the crisis housing system. Um, if we think with what, well, that system's really broken now because there's very little that um, particularly crisis housing services can actually do except maintain people until their next benefit is through. And that, that was the whole idea about what was supposed to happen in terms of how we provide crisis housing services and why projects like ours were actually funded. There were 11 funded to look at models that could actually um, support people and get a housing outcome. So it just, I mean, it adds it, it adds to it. It adds to do, the numbers. Do your clients, um, your older clients, do they often end up in prison? Um. Yeah, yeah, we've certainly had those those circumstances. Yeah, um, but generally, if um, our contact with prisoners is um, with older people who have done mm. fair amount fair, fair amount of We're time, actually out of time. But can, is there a link people can go to to help yep, with big support um, and all that? Yep. Stuff? So just if you type in on the on the web housing for the age action group, and you'll see our campaign page there. People can pledge their support. Right. Having a demo on the fifteenth of May. People who haven't got yep. that sort of facility, ring you and just ring our office. Yep. Yep. Nine six five four okay. seven three just, eight nine. Just on that, Ken Davison over the break had a um, a very good article saying what we've been saying for ages yes. about and it, you know, since the 70s they've stopped spending on public housing and yeah. then that's the answer. That's, Spend that's it. right. All right. Okay, Corey, say Homelessness, goodbye. give people a home. Uh, listen, you say goodbye, you're the guest. Tell people goodbye. next week we're going to be talking about um, toxic waste, which is going to cheer people up no end again. And thank Corey for pressing buttons. Yeah, that's you're right. listening to <laughs> City Limits on 3CR 855 AM. This is Jungle with Say It. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au.